Hello and welcome to The Warrior's Cry. Today is a new episode with a new friend that I've met. His nickname is Jay Shiggy and you might know him as that. But his first name is Jeremiah. His full name is Jeremiah Ezekiel Lee Gibson. And I'll tell you, I had a fantastic conversation with him. In fact, right now with all of the stuff that's going on in society, I felt that it was important now more than ever to point to identity. Not identity politics. No, no, not identity politics at all. This is not anything to do with such a matter, but rather this is our identity in Christ, pointing to the truth of our genesis and who we are in Christ. And this is not an easy subject for me to breach, simply because I am a white man and I don't fully understand every situation that my black brothers and sisters have to deal with or any other minority for that matter but what I do know for a fact is that it is finished and Jesus has already provided an answer for every single one of us in this world and sometimes it takes us making a decision to turn our face from certain things and move away from all of that to metanoia and change our minds into a different direction. So, without further ado, I just want to introduce my brother, Jeremiah. Thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Warrior's Cry. I've got my brother Jeremiah Gibson on the phone. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been discussing a lot of racial elements in our society. And it's gotten pretty downright venomous. And uh, there's a lot of opinions flying around. There's a lot of hate flying around. And I wanted to add some finished work perspective to this while presenting a grace argument, as well as um, our views behind all of this stuff. Now, I don't normally discuss politics uh, on Facebook or or even on uh, the Warriors Cry podcast. Um, in fact, I ended another podcast that was a political podcast specifically for the reason of um, I didn't want to really be stuck in divisive politics. So, this episode is going to get a little bit into the weeds with that, um, but I just want to give you a heads up and let you know. So, uh, Jeremiah, welcome to this uh, episode of The Warrior's Cry. Uh, go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about your background and who you are. Thank you for having me, James. Um, well, my name is Jeremiah Gibson. I am uh, from many places. Actually, I currently live in Western Massachusetts. I um, currently um have been seeking god just just in my own little personal time but i've been um had like a lot of different backgrounds i'm actually uh it's weird because i'm actually um was born in florida i was raised in connecticut i spent some time out in um, arizona and now i'm in western massachusetts but in all that time i would say for the last 
uh, I would say maybe 12 or 13 years or so, did Holy Spirit reveal to me grace. Um, I remember the first person I heard preach, like uh, I would say, like, you know, we don't like to put labels on it, but like a grace-centered message was actually Joseph Prince back in, I think, maybe 2008 or nine. And then I was introduced in 2010 to John Crowder and then some other people who had all these different flavors, like Steve McVeigh and um, Don Keithley and some of these other people who were teaching um, these things. So I've been diving into the understanding of grace for a long time. I just turned 28 on June 5th. Um, so I am fairly young, but I grew up with a mom who's a minister. Um, I grew up in the church, basically, all different types of churches. So not necessarily one denomination, but all different types of different things, but mainly within the charismatic uh, tradition. And um, so I'm like, I'm used to the, you know, all the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, all the gifts of the Spirit. That's definitely my background, 100%. I even went to a Nazarene church um, during oh, wow. my teen years for, yeah, for a good five years, actually. So it was, and it was an interesting experience because being a young um, black man at the time growing up with a single mom, it was really nice to see family structure, which you know, that particular church, um, I went to a, the Nazarene Church in Manchester. Now, that particular church wasn't, I mean, they weren't keen on the whole gifts of the spirit thing. But what they did have, which I cherish to this day, is family structure. And, um, and I just cherish my mom for, um, you know, allowing me to be in that environment because I, I got to see what it was like for to, to really be like a, you know, secure family, you know, a mom and a dad and those things. And they had family down packed. So I remember even like four years in us, into us being at that church, what was interesting about it was uh, they let my mom do a little healing service. Now, this was huge for the Nazarene church at the time. I remember we advertised it on Facebook. We did a whole bunch of things for it. We even had some friends of ours that we met at conferences because during this time as well, uh, my mom and I used to kind of, kind of conference hop. You know, we, you know, with a lot of different people, Patricia King, Matt Sorger, some of those other guys within like the whole prophetic movement, which I can also talk about that. But we um, had some friends that we met while going to all these different conferences all around New England and all around the Northeast, basically. And they all came and helped us, my mom, with this particular meeting. We had a good 200 people show up at this church, which is actually more than people who normally would show up at the church. And um, we ended up having this little meeting. The only thing is, though, when we prayed for somebody, someone shouted in tongues. It was just a random person that uh, <laughs> that we invited. <laughs> not a random person, someone that we knew, but it wasn't a, someone who was a part of the church, but not somebody who was also a part of the ministry that we were doing. So during the prayer time she was you know we had different people set up praying for people and she just shouted in tongues and one of the <laughs> one of the church ministers heard <laughs> that and was kind of uh peeved about it and didn't let us do any of those type of meetings and then we basically moved on within the next year and a half not because it was hard feelings it's just that you know was, my mom had moved to arizona and I was finishing up high school, and so after I finished up high school in Hartford, I uh, moved to Arizona myself. I was there for about four years, and 
I also have an associate's degree in biblical studies. Um, I went to Bible school for about two years. Fortunately, I was able to graduate early because of all this personal study that I did. And the, my teacher recognized that and gave me some extra credit. And so I was able to graduate in two years as opposed to um, four. But um, that's a little bit about my background. I have loved Jesus my entire life. I have had my ups and downs. I've had a few supernatural experiences, but I also feel like a part of my prophetic calling is not just saying, you know, of course, if you're, if anybody who's listening is a part of like the whole like prophetic move, you know, you always hear a prophecy does say of the Lord and they say, I see this for you, I see that. But I've noticed with me in particular, it's like my, the way that God speaks to me is I'm able to see patterns within life. It could be patterns of groups of people, patterns within concepts, patterns within different types of groups as far as even race is concerned and different things like that, as far as politics is concerned, as far as society and culture in general is concerned. I'm able to see like behind the lines and between the lines and above the lines, behind the lines and you know, below the lines and all those particular things. And it's like, I feel like that's basically like how God talks to me as I've been able to like really try to pinpoint how that works. And that, that just, that seems to be how a God speaks to me normally. And I hear uh, you. for the most, and for the most part, that's why like when it comes down to politics, which I know a lot of people are afraid to talk about. And even when it comes down to philosophy, when it comes down to Jesus, when it comes down to all these different things, it's like I'm able to see between the lines of a lot of the different like conceptual things within these particular sects of culture. So like and within my, you know, my faith, within just like I said, within philosophy, within culture itself, within society, it's like that's why I'm not afraid to talk about politics because I feel like it's all intertwined. Like culture in the way society is going, whatever direction is going, you can actually see, um, you know, the spiritual climate of the land, basically, based on where society is going. Who has like the dominant ear in society? And uh, mm. that's my, in a nutshell, kind of how I think. <laughs> Well, and helpful, <laughs> oh, you're okay. You're good, brother. So <laughs> I, uh, I also were, was called into the prophetic a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I had oil pulled over, poured over my head and, uh, yeah. was prophesied that I would actually speak to Kings and Queens and, um, that hey. I would have a voice in the courts, uh, all over the world. And, uh, I think that's a little bit about where the warriors cry kind of came from too, was, that I felt like I was supposed to be a watchman on the wall and I was supposed to warn people of impending doom and danger. And, uh, you know, and I, and I felt like I was being called to be like the old Testament style prophet. And, uh, you know, the, the, the one that could see things and, you know, like, uh, I can't remember the King's name, but he said that, uh, he was talking of Elisha when he said that, um, uh, that Elisha could see into the very private matters inside of his bedroom. Um, so I thought that that was kind of what my calling was. And for years I pursued that. And I, I was the, thus saith the Lord. I was the, 
you know, the, the fire and br- uh, brimstone, mm-hmm. you know, um, guy. And uh, then I got obsessed with love in mm-hmm. around 2011, 2012. And even though I still believed in hell and brimstone and, um, and, and all of this kind of stuff, I, I, uh, I believed in love and I believed that love would win, would win all. And it wasn't until 2017 mm-hmm. that I realized that love already has won all. Um, and that all the striving that I did was meaningless. You know, it's like reading Ecclesiastes. Yes. Yes. You know, it's like fighting against the wind, boxing in against the very air or the shadows or whatever. Mm-hmm. You're not going to win because you're just wearing yourself out. And uh, exactly. that's essentially where... Uh, I was when I was addicted to politics because there again, um, I was the guy that uh, was warning of impending danger. I was a conspiratorial nut job, uh, if I could say so myself. You know, uh, I I would see all the dark things that were coming on the 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 horizon, and I would warn people mm-hmm. and and point them. Thus saith the Lord. I remember I would do videos. Mm-hmm on Facebook where I would be crying that government is going to come and round us up and blah, blah, blah. You know, um, I was that crazy lunatic, you know? Um, and then when I met Jesus, Mm. it only, it only took a, uh, waking up one morning and seeing Jesus outside of my window, holding a boom box over his head, playing, uh, in your eyes. And there's a big story to that. I'll be glad to tell you that offline. I've said that a few times in, in the podcast, but, mm-hmm. um, but that's when I first met Jesus and it took uh, ah. a brother of mine sending me a copy of the mystical union uh, from John Crowder. It took uh, uh, him sending me a, a copy of Brian Schilt's no more bastard mm-hmm. CD. Um, and when I was I exposed to all of this, Oh yeah, it's a wonderful CD. And, um, and, uh, so whenever I had been experienced all of that stuff, then I realized that that profit that I thought I was, wasn't what I thought it was at all. That, that yes, I believe that I'll have a voice in front of Kings and Queens, but it's a different voice. It's a, it's a voice that where I'm actually speaking to literal Kings and Queens you, exactly. my brothers, my sisters, every single person that's walking God. on this earth is kings and queens. And and I am to point out their identity and point them to who their true identity is. And that's basically where I've been at. And then um, fast forward to all of this unrest that started uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and granted, it's been bubbling under the surface since back when Trayvon Martin and uh, oh, yeah. Freddie, yeah. Freddie Gray and all of the different uh, people that had gotten killed back in 2012, 13, I think. So it had been bubbling under the surface for a while. And back then, um, I remember sitting on Twitter and um, tweeting things like all lives matter and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I was accused of being a racist because I was saying all mm-hmm. lives matter. And uh, I, I was shamed because I believed that every single life matters. Um, black, white, you know, Asian, uh, Indian, you know, everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I believe everybody matters. And 
And when I was saying that, people would say, well, no, black lives uh, uh, or all lives don't matter until black lives matter. And I'm like, well, uh, you know, looking at it today, I'm like, well, you can't have exclusionary ideology and be claiming to carry the kingdom. And one of the things that just really broke my heart is when all this stuff hit the fan these last few weeks ago, I have seen a lot of my grace brothers and sisters, people that drink from the everlasting spring of the finished work of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of the good news. And I've seen a lot of them jumping on to the black lives matter, you know, bandwagon and shaming mm-hmm. those of us who tried to stay quiet because we didn't know what to say. And, exactly. um, and I didn't know what to say. I, I am brokenhearted about what happened to George Floyd. I am brokenhearted mm-hmm. about what happened to Breonna Taylor. I I am brokenhearted about all of that. But I'm also brokenhearted about the Duncan uh, Duncan Limps who uh, mm-hmm. had the no-knock warrant where he was killed too. And, uh, and, and nobody said a thing when he died, you know? No. Um, nope. Nobody said a thing when other people died of different races. It's only when... Um, our black brothers and sisters are, are injured or killed um, mm-hmm. by, you know, uh, these police officers who honestly didn't know any better and they messed up. They messed up. They, they, exactly. you know, um, and of course everything hits the fan. Everybody wants judgment. Everybody wants um, justice. You know, they keep posting this hashtag, no, no justice, no peace, as if they exactly. they will continue to riot and continue to destroy things until, you know, every racist is hung on the gallows. And um, it breaks my heart because I don't believe personally that there are as many racists in the police departments as what they might say. I say so. Um, mm-hmm. And so – you know, Jeremiah is a member of, you know, the black community. Um, mm-hmm. What What is your experience with all of this? Like the, the last couple of weeks or your entire life with all of this? Like, what is your experience? So I'm going to um, lay down a few things, which I'm going to give you like my, um, you know, just my, you know, just my experience with just things regarding this particular topic and then as well as how this stuff like affected me personally that's happened recently so actually i'll probably do the first one first i will admit with all this stuff that's been happening just as the same human being i've been you know just down about it i will admit um but not down about it in the same or for the same reasons that a lot of people were like all the contention and all of the divisiveness in social media and all that stuff has definitely caused me to be a little bit more um, down than I usually am. But I feel like with this particular thing, and like I, just like I said earlier, I've always been able to see between the lines of stuff. I also have a keen eye for truth. And I feel like these particular things go into grace. So I noticed that there were narratives that were always um, portrayed. Um, I feel like there were always narratives, and the narratives have always been sort of anti-white for the last, I would say, four or five years, ever since uh, Trump ran for office, basically. And um, 
And I've noticed that, like, this is what something Holy Spirit told me to do back in 2016. Now, politics, I'm actually, this is something that some people might find a surprise about me. Politics has always been boring to me until about 2016. And um, I never really liked politics. I thought it was boring and it was just not necessarily something that we should ever talk about because it's just boring. And that was basically my main argument for not necessarily wanting to be into politics. It was boring. But something Holy Spirit told me to do in 2016 when um, I think it was around the time where it was narrowed down between Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump. And um, this all goes into my point. What happened was when Bernie Sanders was kicked out of the nomination, Holy Spirit told me to start paying attention to this stuff. And I was like, okay, I, I guess I will. But as I started paying attention, I realized something that even if like you're on the right or the left end of the spectrum politically, there's something nefarious going on where it's almost like there's a narrative that's been anti-white ever since someone you know, basically was becoming popular from the, the right end of the spectrum. There was something that was happening. And so for the last four years, there's been all this anti-right narratives and anti-white rhetoric. But as soon as the whole thing kind of blew up with Ahmaud Aubrey and everybody was spewing hate at white people for a long time. I mean, people for the most part in social justice, they always would say, oh, you know, um, you know, white people this and white people that, but it's been exacerbated after the whole George Ford case, after the Breonna Taylor case, after the Ahmad Aubrey case. And um, I just, as a person who understands truth and from my experience, cannot see the narrative that's being pointed out. The narrative is always that black people are victims. That's the narrative. And white people are perpetrators. But if you look at the numbers, and numbers, unfortunately, for these narratives don't lie. If you look at the numbers, it proves that black people are actually the least likely to die from police brutality, but are a lot more likely to die at the hands of another black person within their community. It's also showing that black people do typically commit high more numbers of crimes, we're only 13.4% of the population, but we do commit about 50% of the violent crimes in America. White people are 60.4% of the population and commit about maybe, I think if I read it correctly, about 25 to 30%, if even that, I think it was around like 20% of the violent crimes in America, if even that, I think it's either in the teens or like in the very low 20% pile. So if I can interrupt you real quick on that point, yeah. um, one of the things that I've noticed is that when people bring that up, yeah. immediately you've got a lot of these social justice, uh, Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter group saying, well, the reason why violence or criminal activities takes place uh, at a higher rate in black communities is because the police departments are systematically racist and they target black neighborhoods and communities mm -hmm. this is true and, and this is what i'm not saying that's true this is what they say it's true yeah well they yeah they exactly they say that that's true and you know i actually was training to be a police officer back in 2000 oh, wow. and uh 
I'm fortunate and glad that I did not pursue it any further. Um, but one of the things that I noticed was that there were just as many black folks that were trying out as there were white folks, you know, mm -hmm. and this was in South Florida. So, you know, oh, wow. uh, it, it was, you know, um, we had to do this, uh, this, uh, um, obstacle course and all this kind of stuff. And you had, um, then we had to swim for like a mile and tread water for 30 minutes. It was not, uh, I mean, it was a fun day, but it was exhausting. Um, mm -hmm. and one of the things that I noticed was that, um, in communities where you see more, um, uh, when you, when you see more of, uh, you know, our minority brothers and sisters joining in to like police forces and things like that, you see less of this kind of thing, you know, exactly. Um, yeah. but in communities where, um, you see a lot of like, I don't know, um, where you see a lot of these like rappers and stuff like that come from where they're talking about kill the police and F the police and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You see a lot more increase in, uh, violence in those communities as well. And, yeah. you know, um, now I don't know the right answer to that, but I do know that, you know, that's one of the things that's constantly said to me is that cops are targeting black folks. And that's the reason why, um, the black communities have a higher crime rate. And so what is your view of that? So actually what's interesting about that is, because I've heard that argument many times before. Now, I fortunately didn't grow up in too many like really hood places. I did, however, did grow up in, um, you know, I was in Hartford for a little bit. And which is, if I, if you know anything about Connecticut, well, in the Northeast, I mean, Connecticut is really like Hartford is considered like a pretty predominantly black city. It's the capital of Connecticut, but it's predominantly black. I grew up in Manchester as well, which wasn't as predominantly black, but it became more predominantly black um, as years went on, as more people migrated there from Hartford because they did like some kind of um, like welfare, like housing stuff in um, Manchester. So a lot of people came from Hartford to Manchester. But here's the thing about that. Communities um, that have more crime statistics aren't because the police are actually targeting black people. Now, here's the thing. I mean, you might have, just like in any profession, you might actually have people who go into the those types of professions with nefarious and ulterior motives. Like, because not everybody understands their true identity in Christ, you know. So some people are just evil. You know, and like you have your evil doctors who've gotten in trouble. You've gotten you have your evil lawyers. You have your people who are just slimy. You know what I mean? So those people do exist, unfortunately. And one thing I realize is to be able to look at those types of people. But proportionately, cops are not targeting black people. It's just that black people are doing things that get themselves in trouble with the police to begin with. Now I'm 28 years old, James, and I am very dark skinned. Now, I'm not even supposed to have light skin privilege. I've been living out here in the Northeast for five years. Right? I've been out here since 2015. I've lived in predominantly white neighborhoods and uh, towns since I've been out here. Uh, when I lived with my godparents in another part of Western Massachusetts, which is even more rural than where I live now, even though where I live now is pretty rural. 
like I was, there was probably one or two other black people that lived in this particular town of 2,000 people. I did not experience any kind of discrimination. Um, now, I know when I use that argument, people would say, well, you just don't know the black struggle. But here's the thing. It's not that I don't know the black struggle. I just made different decisions. And one of the things that I know with what's going on with like my fellow black people is that a lot of times they're prone to make different types of decisions. Now, it could be environmental. It could be nature versus nurture. It could be a combination of all those things. I know that it's also not knowing your identity in Christ. The thing is, you know, that the church is actually pretty predominant in uh, black culture. Um, the only thing is, though, having been to black churches, many of them, a lot of times, like the whole understanding of like grace is, you know, this, the understanding of it is not there as yet. Except for I noticed that Creffle Dollar in particular, you know, he's been um, like kind of, you know, jumping on a more finished works perspective which I find pretty remarkable. I like that about, you know, about, what, you know, God, you know, God just revealed that to him. But what's interesting is I noticed that police really aren't targeting black people. I mean, I've been pulled over maybe three times since I've been out here. Um, one, because my light, my license plate was out. Another one, because I was going a little bit fast on the way home from work. And they always gave me a warning because I was very compliant. Um, you know, I never really thought that I could outsmart no just outdo them physically never really argued with them I just was like hey okay this person has more power and authority than I do right now let me just comply I mean always left me off with some warning I've never been even not only have I not been pulled out of the car and shot and killed which I'm not making light of that but I've never even been given a ticket and I and I've come to the conclusion this is like what I'm concluding on um, as far as this whole thing is concerned, is that it's all about the decisions you make. Now, I know people would say, oh, that's supposed to just conservative talking points, but if there's something about it, like I carry myself pretty professionally as a person. Like I dress professionally. I don't look like somebody who's going to rob you. I don't carry myself that way. I believe in um, being a person who can present yourself a particular way because presenting yourself professionally or having a particular look, let's just face it, that's how people perceive you. You go into these neighborhoods, you're making a whole bunch of noise and you're kind of acting the way that people are intimidated by. People are going to, for the most part, treat you as such. Now, here's another thing I realized uh, when it comes down to like these types of communities and the police and different things like that. Now, you can say it's because of economic or socioeconomic positions or whatever, but white people tend to make different decisions than black people do. There's a thing, and I can say this about black people because I grew up with these types of people. Um, when it comes down to black people in particular, but not, you know, like just your regular everyday black person, like your, you know, your hood type, they will make, well, I'll put it this way, their priorities are different. And if I can put this like in a particular way, their priorities are different because what they would normally um, be interested in is completely different. Now, black men in particular, a lot of times focus on swag a lot. They focus on swag and looking cool and looking hip. So as soon as the black, you know, your average like person from the hood gets a little bit of money, they're going to spend that money on probably a pair of Jordans, a gold chain or whatever. A lot of times white people, and this is just in general, 
what they would do when they get money is they invested in, they either invested in their kids, they invested in their family, they invested in their house, it's just different priorities as a whole. So I really do believe it's decisions. I don't associate with people unless I'm ministering to them with the type of person who's going to um, either get me in trouble or the wrong crowd. And I've been pretty well to do as a result of this. No, I know I'm just one person, but I can name countless people who've made the same decisions that I did and are as black people, black men and women. And they've been able to come out of that particular round. They've been able to come out of that space and they are successful as a result of it. They have a really good head on their shoulders and they're not associating themselves with people who are going to harm them. Now, here's the thing, James. I feel like my perspective is different. Now, I didn't talk about my school background, um, but I'll get into this really quickly. Um, when I was in high school and middle school, I always, even back then, presented myself differently. Now, I was a lot more of like your religious type back then. I was I, I was a guy who dressed in suits, which I still kind of like to do, but I would come to school dressing like in different types of clothes. I would bring my, I would actually fast lunch there was a time in which I fasted lunch for a few months and only and brought my Bible into school and would uh, read my Bible instead of eating lunch sometimes, which actually really concerned the teachers. Um, but during that time, I always, you know, had a strong grip on the English language and I never really talked, even though I could, like somebody from the hood. So a lot of times my peers would, uh, and even adults, would come up to me and they would be like, and Jeremiah, why are you always talking white? Why are you always dress white? And stuff like that. They were asking those types of questions. And I would, at the time, say, I'm not trying to act white. I just am acting like myself. I'm not trying to act a particular color. I'm not trying to necessarily fit in with this group of people. I'm just being myself. And people, like other Black people, and sometimes Puerto Ricans, too, are different people in something in the city that I knew would ask me that question all the time. So they would somehow equate speaking a particular way as acting white. So they believe that intelligence or speaking eloquently or elegantly somehow was synonymous with being white, which showed me the self-hatred within the black community and how and what's valued in the black communities or certain black communities. I don't like to say the black community because there's so many different communities and so many different people. So the black communities, no, 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 black communities as plural. Um, I, I realized what was valuable there and it wasn't intelligence. It wasn't, um, it, it wasn't knowledge. It wasn't any of those things. It was swag for the most part. So if you uh, were a black person, even in my generation, I was born in the 90s. So I was going to high, I was in high school and middle school, like within the early 2000s and late 2000s is when I was going to, and when I was in high school, graduated in 2011. So what was interesting about that was the fact that I had a lot of people asking me, why am I talking white? And I realized that there was like this self-hatred. It was the, um, I forgot who coined this phrase, but it's just, it was the soft bigotry of low expectations, where it's almost like, people would think that somehow you speaking this way, white people would ask me this too sometimes, but it just depends. Somehow is synonymous with being white. 
and you have to talk this way and act this way because that is synonymous with being black. So sum all that up, I feel like what's really going on in the black community isn't necessarily white people targeting black people. I mean, more than likely, I mean, white, I mean, I mean black to white homicides actually happen a lot more often. What I feel like is that we have been put down. Systemic racism, I actually do believe, does exist, which I think I wrote this to you, um, James. I think it, but I think it exists in a different way that than most people are willing to admit. Now, I know I, and up until now, I'm going to get more specific with my political linings, but I, it does tie into my point. I do not believe the systemic racism that exists today looks like Trump or it looks like conservatism, or if it, or it looks like, you know, George Bush back in uh, the early 2000s. I actually, I'm going to, I'm going to say this. I know some people, you know, might get it upset, but I want them to just listen to me and what I'm saying. I really believe, and I'm going to go into it. I believe systemic racism looks more like leftism. It looks more like Obama. It looks more like Clinton. It looks, the Clintons. It looks more like all these people who actually want to keep the black community down by incentivizing us to stay in a particular place. Because as you can tell, like the, the black conservatives or even not even if they're not necessarily politically aligning, they're they're intelligent, they don't normally get all of the recognition than some of the other ones do. And the black community if you are a well-to-do black person, like if you're like someone like uh, Dr. Ben Carson, if you're like someone like Dom, like Dr. Thomas Sowell, who is should be more popular in my opinion, but he's an economist. He's like over 70 years old. He's been doing things for a long time. Been doing this for years. He has different opinions about economics and how it uh, affects systemic racism and those those particular things. He doesn't get as much recognition because in the black community, if you, you have to be basically a rapper or someone like that or a gang member or something like that to, you know, in order to get some kind of recognition. I mean, that's why people hate on people like Candace Owens because Candace Owens and what she represents as even another dark-skinned black woman People don't like, I and mean, she's really intelligent, but people don't like her because of what she says, not because of whether or not she says it's true. It's because she's intelligent. She has a different way of speaking, a different accent than most people would expect from a black woman or a black person. She does her thing. And um, a lot of people within our community, and I'm just speaking the, the truth based on my experience with my community in any way. They don't like intelligent people, and it's crazy. Not all of them. I mean, what I'm. By the way, I want to preface everything I'm saying based on who's listening. I'm not saying any of these things as a whole for the black community, or even as a whole for the white or any community that exists on our planet. I'm speaking in general. These are things that um, will typically happen, and sometimes the narrative. And I've actually I realized most of the time the narrative isn't necessarily the truth most of the time like whatever the popular narrative isn't always the truth i'm saying that the reason why black people are down are for a few reasons and i'll sum this up just real quick like you know i can i can go on forever about this type of stuff but the biggest reason is because a lot of us don't know our identity in christ a lot of us don't, and i think that's the biggest reason why we are looking for something else to help us 
Another thing is, and then more like so in the natural is fatherlessness. 75% of us are born out of wedlock because for the most part, the government has been giving uh, black women checks to raise kids. And so a lot of black women believe that they don't really need a dad to raise that child or to help raise that child. And this is not all of them, this is just a few. So that's why you'll see your average black woman with a whole bunch of kids, but the father of those children or the multiple fathers of those multiple kids is nowhere in sight. And unfortunately, you know, since so many uh, black boys and girls are raised without fathers, it really kind of um, sort of dampens that child's ability to be well-rounded and to go out in the world and make good decisions. I'm going to tell you right now, I mean, my dad was in and out of my life. My dad never wanted to, like, he never disowned me. He didn't get along with my mom. We have a great relationship now, but he wasn't always there. My mom remarried about nine years ago, and I had a, a father figure. But it really took the grace of Jesus to kind of get me to be healed of some of the stuff that I just, you know, that I was carrying on me because I was raised around mostly women. And that's unfortunate. That's another thing within the black community that keeps us down is the fact that we don't know like, girls don't really have a, a really positive male figure in their lives, for the most part of the black community. And men don't have a father, the young boys, anyway, the young men don't have a father to help them go in the right direction. And so these are all things I feel like that kind of keep us down. But I'm going to tell you what is really not. It is not white people really targeting blacks. It is not white people targeting. I mean, factually, what I realize is that mostly... There's white people, for the most part, have been the most altruistic when it comes down to the whole black cause. I mean, if it wasn't for my godmother, Mimi, taking me in, who's, you know, who's a very white woman, I wouldn't be half the man that I am right now, to be perfectly honest, and her husband, Mike, and their family. So that's the thing. All these things, and it's hard for me to kind of sum this up, because that's why I, uh, I'm probably at one point going to be writing a book about all this stuff because I have a lot to say and I don't want to, I know this podcast is only an hour long, but um, I feel like that's like the sum up of what I feel like is happening within our community. The riots are, um, I believe, are a cry from the black community, especially black men who really want guidance. They want help. They, they need fathers. We need to make different decisions. And I'm not saying that white people as a whole make better decisions, but for the most part, they make different decisions. And people are mad at white people on top and people have all this hatred for white people who have nothing to do with slavery like hundreds of years ago. But white people have always made different decisions. That's just how it always has been. Of course, certain people make bad decisions, but as a whole, they've made different decisions and that's why they've been able to generate a little bit more wealth. I feel like for us, and I know people think this is racist because what people like to think of themselves as victims. I don't. I know that I need, I live in this country, I live in America, that gives me the right to go after something that I want to go after. And if I don't put that work into going after it, then my whole life is going to come apart. It's not going to necessarily be what I want it to be. I need to go after whatever God tells me to go after 
Um, and of course, I'm going to run into some like nasty people, but it's not a systemic problem. It's basically a problem with the, the fact that certain people don't know identity in Christ, so they're a little slimy. Yeah, that's the thing. Oh, so yeah. that's, 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 I mean, James, that's like basically how I feel. I could go on and on, but I, I don't want to like over, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things. Hey, but that's the point of the say. podcast, to be honest, Jeremiah. <laughs> like, it, I, like my, my point of even asking you to be on the podcast is really, mm-hmm. I wanted people to hear my heart and to know that my hashtag be a peacemaker um, yes. Posts, my hashtag gracious posts aren't anything to do with white privilege or any of that yes. stuff. I, you know, I think that, uh, and, and, and the thing that really frustrates me is that, you know, when I say that I've never been given a job or gave a job to anyone else because of their skin color, like mm-hmm. I'm accused of not realizing my white privilege, you know? Um, Ah, and, and it's like, you know, when it comes down to it, listen, like I was the only white guy that worked in a, uh, a store with, with nothing but, uh, black brothers, uh, and sisters even for about two years, I worked in that store and built relationships with all of them to the degree that, um, where one of them invited me to his dad's funeral, um, when his dad passed away. And he wouldn't have had any other white guy there. Like he actually told me that he said, I would be the only white guy to show up if I came. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to come because I was in a different city or state at the time and wasn't able Mm -hmm. to make it. And I really hated that I couldn't have come. But thinking back to like my, it was at a rent to own place and, and, you know, it was called Aaron sales and lease. I'm sure you've heard of them. Um, I have actually. Yeah. But driving around with this guy, his name was uh, Robert. His nickname was Snoop. And uh, he he had the whole, like, hood dress that he would do. Like, he'd wear a do-rag and a hat cocked to the side. And when I first mm-hmm. saw him, I was intimidated by him. And then I found out mm-hmm. he, he was a teddy bear, you know. Um, and and mm-hmm. he would do anything for his friends. And uh, mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that, like... I I am stuck in like I feel like I'm a prisoner in my own white skin, you know, um, yeah. because I can't I explain my perspective and my heart without someone immediately jumping to, well, you have white privilege or you're racist or, um, you know, let let these people speak, mm-hmm. let them cry, let them uh, listen. I want to cry with you. I want to hug your neck. I want to love you. Um, but I'm being held at arm's length because I have my own opinions that may not agree with yours. Um, and, and that to me is just a frustrating place for me to be in because I don't know how to quantify it. Does that make sense? I know it does. It makes perfect sense, James. And here's the thing, what I want to encourage you with real quick, and this is something that I, I know offline I said I wanted to talk about more um, a little bit. And I just will just give you some encouragement as well as kind of make this point. Here's the thing, James. You and a lot of other white people have been, I mean, there's a lot of hate that's been spewed 
at white people. And people think they're justified in it. And what's ironic about that, James, is the fact that white, there's been a lot more white hate as of late than has been, than has been black hate, to be perfectly honest. I'm just kind of, I'm putting that out there. Um, the hatred toward white people that I've seen just for having different opinions is troubling to me and where the culture is going because people don't want to have a discussion. Now, I will say there was one thing I posted, um, I commented on somebody's Facebook uh, page, um, something that they said. It was some kind of post that they made, and I forgot the context of it. But I kind of, you know, just in a small post, kind of gave some statistics. And then another black brother came up, and he just commented. He said, oh, we have somebody, you know, within our own ranks who's against our cause. And I replied to him by saying, well, you can think I'm an enemy if you want. It wouldn't be true. I'm just you know, telling the truth for the most part. And then he asked me to elaborate, so I did, and I gave him a little bit more of a lengthy post, and he actually, I mean, his heart softened, and he said something that was very interesting to me. And he said, you see, I'm happy I asked you to elaborate because I understand what you're saying now, and I was just a little bit too emotional, and that was the key. James, what I think this has a lot to do with is the... Like, especially us, we're very, okay, but us, us, us black people are very passionate people. We're very, like, you know, we're very animated and very high energy people. A lot of times, you know, with the exception of Ben Carson, a lot of us are very, like, you know, animated people. And um, it's interesting. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just put that thought together. I didn't realize what you were saying until you said it. Did you get, yes, you get he it now? Yes, he's a very robotic kind of guy, you know. Yes, he is. Very cold and calculated. And not necessarily, it looks like most of the time he's asleep. But, that's, that's another thing. <laughs> but for the most part, <laughs> but for the most part, a lot of us are very animated people. So, James, here's the thing. We get emotional quickly. I mean, I am, even though I, I have learned a lot about my own personal emotional intelligence, I have definitely, you know, just jumped feet, you know, above where I used to be emotionally. But naturally, a lot of us are very emotional people, which I actually think is because a lot of us were raised by mainly women, which women typically are more emotional. That's just a fact. Um, but we tend to be more emotional. And it's hard for us to really listen to reason when we are super emotional about stuff. And all the contention on social media, especially if, like you're, say, if you're white, and you said, James, you even tried to post something like, you know, All Lives Matter or whatever, and people crucified you for it. To me, I don't like that. I don't like this bullying mentality that I've been seeing on social media as of late. I hate it as a matter of fact, and I'll use that term because to me, I live in a democracy. I don't know anybody, I, I, you know, I, don't know, I don't know what else anybody thinks. I live in a place that gives me the right to speak. I know that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, negate uh, consequences to wherever that speech is, but I shouldn't, you know, be bullied into having an opinion. White people are being bullied into having an opinion right now. Into having into to oh if you're not even the grace people right now, oh if you're not saying anything you, you're an enemy or something. I do not agree with that sentimentality at all. 
because everyone is allowed to think the way that they want to think. You don't have to associate with whoever thinks vastly different from you. But the point is they should have the right to think that way. There's been this bullying thing where people are literally trying to bully white people into submission and not even just white people, just anybody who has an opinion that slightly differs from the narrative. But even if it's just slightly, there's like this bullying thing. And James, I, here's the thing. I know you, you I want to encourage you because I know you can do whatever Holy Spirit tells you to do in this particular thing. But I just don't want you to ever be bullied and feeling like you you don't have a voice. You know what I mean? Because you as a white man, actually, my my asking James, how old are you? I am forty. You're forty, so you're about so you're about thirteen years older than me. And what's interesting about um, that is the. Um, you have some experience in this world more than I do. And you have a voice. You've, you've experienced certain things. You've seen certain things. You should have a right to speak. You know what I mean? Like, people shouldn't bully you into having an opinion, which this is what I see is going on. It's like this bullying mentality, and I'm, I'm going to say it again. I hate it because it, 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 it squanders the voice that God has given us. And it also, it, it's abusive, to be perfectly honest. It's abusive. And that's what I see. It's, it's, it's a problem with all of this because I feel like even if you're you're not even calling, you know, saying the N-word, that's not even a thing that these people are doing. They just have a different opinion. They have a different perspective. They're just kind of giving a different understanding, maybe from a more logical point of view, and people are throwing a whole bunch of hatred at them. And to be honest, it's all about a false narrative. See, there's a lot of healing that needs to happen, and I'm, I'm going to say this. If white people weren't racist before, if a huge number of white people weren't racist before, after all the stuff that's gone down, especially on social media, but also in the world, where um, businesses have been burned down, people have been killed during these riots, they're probably a racist now. And I say that with no pleasure. Because white people have had a lot of restraint over the, all the rhetoric that's been thrown at them over the last five years since Trump uh, won the highest office in the land. And this is not about supporting Trump or not supporting Trump, by the way. This is all about the narrative. Something is going on. I know you said you kind of steer away from being conspiratorial, which to me, like, in a sense, I have too. But it's like I feel I just I can't help but like, kind of having like this sense that there's just been all this anti-white rhetoric that I cannot stand for as a black guy. I cannot stand for that kind of racism. And all these people think that they're justified, James, just because, just because, oh, we were slaves hundreds of years ago. But guess what? White people were slaves too. If people knew and understood their history, there were all kinds of slaves. I think it was, I think it was even the Burberry, what was it called? The Burberry slave trade. I mean, I might, I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. Well, there were Irish slaves, there were Scottish slaves, there were, um, you know, but the, 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 exactly. The hilarious thing about that is, is that much of, um, academia has hidden knowledge of all of that stuff because it, 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 it doesn't further the cause of what they're trying to teach. No, no, it doesn't. That's the thing. 
so you know they they hide it because it's easier to not have to explain it if it's hidden that's the thing if it's well that's the thing about academia too i mean one of the main reasons why i would even like years ago i would actually be really you know a really good student like before all this stuff was really exacerbated um a lot of people tell me i should um go back to school um have they have told me that before one of the main reasons why a lot of times I refuse to go back to school, even though I probably should, to kind of up my, you know, just my ability to go in different places in life, is because of the indoctrination in academia, especially sociology classes and those types of things where they teach you that it's almost like, I, I mean, I've, I've seen some of these videos on youtube where they will put them out and like the history is so misconstrued and that's why a lot of times fortunately people go to university and come out dumber than they were before they were. <laughs> you're you're exactly right you know it's, um which i can speak to a lot of that i can speak to a lot of that just because i have a printing and marketing business on the side and mm -hmm. and uh my buddy and i we hired uh we hired these three people straight out of like a college for graphic yeah. design and they were horrible. We had to retrain them, you know? Okay. Um, and so if, if that's true for something as not important as graphic design, then it's, it's true for things that are important. Exactly. No, here's the thing, James. It's like you, okay. So you have that degree, right? And um, someone, the average person will go, like I, I went to Bible school, but fortunately I had a Christian focus. But um, you go to like the random, like a really nice Ivy League school. Like since I'm from Connecticut, that would be Yale, right? Like top percent, the top percent of the people who are supposed to actually go to school. Ever since a lot of these particularly like leftist policies have gotten in, affirmative action has taken place and typically at these schools i mean years ago you would at the top people would be going to this school now i know as a great as a guy who understands and wants to understand grace and inclusion i know talking about exclusion in certain contexts is like hard for some people to grasp but i'm going to say that like I, you know in this context there are certain people with you know who are born with a certain iq who have the ability to go to college and learn something and have their ideas challenged, that's not the way college is anymore. First of all, they're accepting basically anybody into these schools now. God bless. And not only that, they're not really challenging ideas unless you have more right-leaning views or somehow you have, you're, maybe, you're, maybe you're, even though I don't like middle-of-the-road people a lot of times, maybe you have a middle-of-the-road, um, you know, more libertarian understanding of life. And you get crucified in these places. That's why I was like, you know what? I'm not spending thousands of dollars to go to school <laughs> to just argue with. I mean, I like to argue, you know, but arguments in a sense of debate, which I believe is what college is supposed to be about. But at the same time, it's like no one, like, it's like you have to have these particular views or life is going to be hell for you, basically is what's going on now in university. Right. Well, I'll and admit, that's... you know, well, oh yeah, you, I'm sorry, continue. Well, you go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say this, that 
I'll admit, yes, I am more of a right-leaning person when it comes down to like, things politically. I don't really identify as a Republican per se, but I mean, I'm definitely very conservative in my politics, but at the same time, it's just, to me, it's not even about conservatism or liberalism, leftism or rightism. You know, ultimately, I'm a kingdom guy. You know, I believe in the kingdom of God. And ultimately, I believe in what's wrong and right, the truth. But yeah, that's all I was going to say in that context. And that... um, Well, and politically, myself, you know, I was raised a Republican... Mm-hmm. Um, I was raised conservative. My family has been actively involved in Republican politics for uh, a large part of a hundred years. You know, wow. so like um, the two of the three Republican governors of North Carolina actually called my great grandmother a mentor. Wow. Um, so they worked for her Amazing. when they went to college. Um I have family that was good friends with Ronald Reagan. I have family that um, was good friends with the the various governors of North Carolina and different senators and all this kind of stuff. And and so I have this history of, uh, you know, Republicanism in my family. And my mom, she was kind of angry when I kind of turned my back on Republicanism. Um, I see. Okay. Because, like, I'm not, like ideologically yes i'm probably conservative but i would consider myself more uh i call myself more of an anarcho-capitalist um, i see okay no i, I know, know guys <laughs> yeah so i'm i'm mm-hmm. i'm kind of like uh southwest of conservatism if that makes sense i see no, that, that makes perfect sense yeah. southeast southeast of conservatism i guess mm-hmm. you'd say but um but i believe like when when uh, you you hear all these people talking about defunding police and all this kind of stuff, all they're trying to do is to remove the funding and move it into something else. Uh, that's exactly. basically the same thing, but uh, uh, allows them to have more power, you know, the individual group to have more power. Um, whereas, you know, for me, Hey, I'm all for defunding the police in the traditional sense. I believe in privatizing, you know, policing and security and, and all of that kind of yes, stuff. Yeah, actually, no, I, I, that's what I agree with, too. I actually, I feel like the reason why uh, I actually am for the defunding only because it protects the Second Amendment. <laughs> right. And, and I believe, I believe that, uh, that states should mandate that every person, every citizen is firearm trained in school. Um, mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I I don't think that government should require people to own a gun, but I do believe that they should be trained to own a gun and they should be taught um, the proper use of a firearm. Um, but there again, being a grace guy, like I, I don't want to have to shoot somebody, you know, I don't want to have to mm-hmm. um, kill somebody, but at the same time, I also want to be able to protect my wife and my, my household and my family. Absolutely. You know? Um, absolutely and and i was telling my wife i said if some of these riots come to my neighborhood or my area which luckily i'm very rural so i'm not really worried about that but if they actually come to my area and they start destroying homes and things like that i said uh, i might shoot them i'll bring them back to life but then i'll shoot them again until the police get exactly (laughs) 
Um, resurrection power, but I will, you know, I will, uh, <laughs> I will take you out if I have to. <laughs> right. You know, if, if you're going to threaten my life or my oh, wife's no. life or anybody's life, you know, it's, it's not that I want to kill anybody, but it's also the fact that if you're threatening, you know, my livelihood and, and everything that I've worked my entire life for, I'm not just going to let you, you know, that's, that's the thing. But there again, when it comes back to the race conversation, like I've, I've had, and, and, and this sounds extremely racist, but <laughs> it's, it's not. Hey, but I've not offended. I've had a lot of black yeah. friends in my life, you know, and and you know that makes um, me not racist. Well, but by the fact that I'm saying that, it makes me sound like I am. It's like when uh, uh, your your godmother Mimi was uh, was she posted something about she showed a picture of her and her first husband which oh, was a, a yeah. black gentleman and somebody said yes. well that's like saying i had a yeah. black friend you know uh, i'm like I no it's that not. <laughs> i think i think i think i i literally think i responded to it i think i think that was one of the comments i responded to i, I look i here's the thing i actually that i i never got a chance to meet her first husband because he passed away before i met them but the thing is, I got a, I, I did, I, I did meet him in the spirit though, which is another story. But, um, <laughs> but to me, like Mimi and Mike, and I'm gonna say this, they are some of the most unracist people in the world because, see, Mimi, she, and I'm gonna say this, if it wasn't for her and Mike being as tough on me as they have been. And as you know, just in my time and experience with them, they were very loving toward me, but they also gave me some tough love. Um, I it, it's just if it wasn't for that, I just I, I feel like I would not have accessed the potential that was on the inside of me. To me, and James, I don't know if you've realized this too, but criticism in this generation has become synonymous with hate. I don't know if you realize that too, but it seems like. Criticism or critique, because criticism has more of a negative connotation, critique in this particular generation has become synonymous with hate. People don't like to be corrected is what I'm saying. It's almost like people think that whatever they're doing now is perfect, that there's never any room for growth, there's never any room for maybe somebody who has a little bit more wisdom than you to say something to you. And that's why I cherish Mike and Mimi because it's like, look, it's like they, well, what I'm saying, the reason why I cherish them was they, they were willing to critique me when needed. As loving as a person as Mimi is, and you would never even know she was, you know, be able to, but she did. It's like, it wasn't, she was never mean to me. She just critiqued me. That's the thing. She was like, look, I, I'm not going to let you waste your life away while you're living in my house. <laughs> right. I was never the kind of person that wanted to waste his life away. But at one point in my life, James, I was very, um, I was just kind of complicit, to put it nicely. Um, that was the mindset that I had back then before I really got introduced to my identity and grace, who I was, who I truly was in God, who I truly was in Christ. So it's just like I cherish people who are willing to correct me. I cherish people who are willing to be a kind of person that corrects. Not 
from a place of haughtiness because they think they're better than everybody else, but because they see the potential that's in you. And they and they say something about it. You know, to me, it's like that has become synonymous with hate. That's become synonymous with racism. That's become synonymous with, oh, you know, you have white privilege. And not even just within the race conversation, just in general. Like society, I feel like, remember, I, I, I prefaced, and when you asked me about my background, I said that, um, like, I'm always been able to see and pay attention to what's going on in culture. And for the most part, just in culture in general, people hate being corrected. Like, it's all about not being judgmental. You know what I mean? Even in with my grace people, like, these are the, I mean, the, my grace people are the people I consider myself aligned with theologically. A lot of times they're always all about not being judgmental and things like that. And to be honest, the, the only place there that I would disagree is that a lot of times they're not willing to call anything out. I do. I believe that sometimes you have to use your voice to experience and to, not just experience, to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, to um, give a little bit of tough love. Because as such as human beings and we're kind of frail, you know, we're strong in Christ, but weak in and of our ourselves i think that we need it i i believe in tough love 100 percent. i don't think it should ever be thrown out well and correction isn't something that uh uh should be turned away you know the the scriptures they do say spoil the rod or uh save the rod spoil the child or or something exactly, along those lines. Yeah. and granted i know that, that was context, you know, yeah. of the law um but there are some truths from the law that are important to integrate into a new creature society, you know? Um, and there are times that we as kids, we really don't know what we're doing. And when it comes back to it, you know, I, I, I always remind myself when faced with different situations is that Jesus said on the cross, he said, Father, Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Exactly. And yep. when I when I bring that thought yep. up, people immediately say, "Well, no, uh, Derek Chauvin knew what he was doing." Well, yeah, he might have knew what he was doing in the flesh, but he did not know what he was doing in the spirit. Exactly. And you know, um, and and the 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 guy that killed uh, Trayvon Martin. He, he may have knew what he was doing in the flesh, but he had no idea what he was doing in the spirit. And, and that, I believe, is what Jesus was speaking to. Because, honestly, when it comes to us in our flesh, we really don't know what we're doing. We have no idea. You know? And, and it's, it's an everyday choice. And uh, it's one of those things that, that I try to remind myself every day um, with my, my walk is do I eat from the tree of life or do I eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And do I, do I uh, choose life or do I choose enmity? And, um, and, and that to me, I think is the most important lesson when it comes to the grace message. Um, when faced with this, do I choose mm -hmm. to speak peace or do I choose to inflame the masses? You know, stirring um, ah, the pot for the sake of it, or actually having like a purpose to what you're doing. <laughs> right. 
you know, um, and, and I've seen a lot of folks that are out there, you know, uh, the other thing that really bothers me about all this is these videos that I keep seeing popping up where these Black Lives Matter activists are demanding that white people kneel and apologize, oh. you know, oh. and stuff like that just bothers I me. I can go because, on for days about that. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, I'm sure you could, and I'd like to hear some of your thoughts. Uh, we may have to we may have to do a second podcast because I want to hear we more. Probably, um, but you know it's like oh I I, I see stuff like that and I'm like I dare somebody to tell me to get on my knees and apologize for something oh I had nothing to do with. You know, oh, not that I'm going to fight them, not that I'm going to like argue with them, but I might laugh out loud. You know. Um, <laughs> And, and I might offend somebody because I'll laugh um, because I, I, I do not believe that that equals or people in unity demand another that's in unity with them to kneel. Now, if I see a group of people kneeling, then I may come up beside them and kneel with them. But that's my own prerogative, you know, Same prerogative, exactly. But. If if somebody's demanding that I take a knee and apologize for something I had nothing to do with, like I, I it it it's 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 offensive, it's racist, you know. Um, it breaks my heart, you know. <laughs> um, but see, that's the thing. That's the thing, James. It's like. James, it's like that. I, I literally, one of the most utterly reprehensible, cringy, most pathetic things I've seen are white people kneeling. I, I'm not, I literally, like, I'm like, what, what, what are you doing? But see, but here's the thing even though I think it's cringy, even though I think it's utterly reprehensible, even though I think it's pathetic. I understand the heart of where the white people are coming from. It's like these really nice sort of kind-hearted white people, you know, kind of like feeling like they have to atone, like we're getting rid of original sin or something like that, which Jesus already crucified. It's almost like I, I get it, but I still think it's pathetic. And I, the reason why I'm using these harsh terms is because I really feel things like that. That is like, like you, like the kneeling represents the the complete. How can I put this? Um, surrender of your rights as a human being to something that you didn't even do. Now I know Jesus took the fall for things that he didn't do. I understand the premise of it, but at the same time, the narrative that's being portrayed against these people just isn't true. And see, and I know at one point, if we do another podcast, or when we do one, I also, if you would, if, if you would allow me, I would um, get into some of the differences I, I, I noticed between the cultures. And like just different things I noticed, like different personality types. I actually have some, I'm just like personal study, I've done some personal study on different personality types from different groups of people, um, how that relates to a lot of these things that are happening, um, how, you know, just different behaviors that I've realized that white people will normally demonstrate versus different behaviors that other people from other races would demonstrate and different things like that. I have, I believe that understanding personality 
and understanding where it fits in between all these things will help us kind of fit in the key of what's kind of going on. Because even though I didn't go to school for it because of the reasons I mentioned earlier, I do somewhat study psychology um, in my free time. I like I understanding personality, the five personality traits, conscientiousness, openness, neuroticism. Um, I said just two more, conscientiousness, openness, neuroticism, um, agreeableness. And um, these particular personality traits and how different people from different socioeconomic backgrounds fit into those big five, basically. Um, extroversion, neuroticism, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. And how all of those particular things fit in. Now, the different people from different realms of different places tend to be more conscientious. Typically, what defines conservatives typically is conscientiousness, for instance. Um, right. Like conscient conscientious people tend to be more dutiful. They believe in obligation versus luxury a lot of times. Um, very aware of their surroundings. Uh, they just, you know, they're very dutiful people, whereas a lot of times more right, uh, left-leaning people tend to be a little bit more open, a little bit more agreeable. Um, and so I feel like understanding personality actually kind of fits in with everything that's going on because like when I'm trying to understand why white people are kneeling, it takes a pretty agreeable person to do something like that. See, you and I aren't very agreeable. You know, most men aren't very agreeable. Some, some are, but you know, it's like, you know, we're not going to kneel for something like that. And that's right. just our personality traits. That's the thing. Um, some people would. I feel like these, like personality and understanding it, you can, we can look at it from two different realms, to, from not two different, but several different realms. We can look at it from the realm of gender. Um, men and women tend to have different personality traits, different things when it comes down to the five big personality traits. Once again, that's conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, extroversion and um, openness those there's different dimensions within those personality traits and there's also um just uh, different ways that people fit into those personality traits men and women you can look at it from a gender perspective you can even look at it from a racial perspective which i know is controversial these days but different people i feel like from different parts of the world have different personality traits I will say that it's not even just socioeconomic or even it could be environment too. I think all those things fit in, but they've done some studies that show that different people are more prone to certain acts of behavior, which I do believe is an important conversation to have um, than other people. I think the, like these, these conversations are important, which I know some people don't like to have them because it is scary territory, which I'll admit. I'll admit that, and if someone doesn't want to have them, I, you know, I don't force them into having them, but I, I do believe that it's important to have them. Because honestly, James, and I'm going to say this, when it comes down to black men in particular, I do consider myself an exception to the rule. And when there's like an exception to the rule, that means there's a rule. The majority of people have this particular personality trait, this particular thing that they're willing to do, this particular thing that's on the inside of them to do, but then there's exceptions to that rule. So 
that's another conversation I can definitely have with you, in which I I think that a lot of people listening would probably find that interesting. Maybe a little controversial, but definitely interesting, because I feel like in trying to understand everything that's going on in our world right now is crucial that we understand people, because a lot of times people are just looking at this from one perspective. All wipes have always been oppressing us, but it, it just goes so much deeper than anything we can even possibly imagine. And of course, at the very end of that, there's Jesus. You know, at and the very, at the deep, very beginning, too. <laughs> and at the very beginning, exactly. So I was like, that's why I always say, if you're searching for truth, like ultimately you will always find Jesus. <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's the thing. It's like, I feel like, because I, I was actually on another little, it wasn't a podcast, but it, it was like a, a little men's thing that um, a friend of uh, a new friend of mine whom I met actually at work who has a goes to a church out here in um, Western Mass he has a little men's thing on Zoom and one of the biggest questions you know he's a he's he's interracially married he's white and he's married to a Puerto Rican woman who's really nice and um, God I mean God has delivered this man from a lot of different things I mean drug addiction porn addiction a whole bunch of stuff. And he had a question that he proposed to me and the other guys that were on. How does the church respond to this? How do the people who love Jesus respond to all of the racial tension happening in our world currently? Like, how does, like, what's the, you know, a Jesus response to all this stuff? And I think the answer that I gave once it got to me was, yes, I believe speaking up about the truth, like, I'm, you know, just different things, different truths and things like that, like I have been during our podcast and our time together, but also understanding that everybody is made in the image of God. Like everybody I'm talking, like the people who are writing as well as the people who are kneeling, people who are protesting as well as the people in the middle, as well as the people who are staying silent. Everybody is created in the image of God. And we're all just trying to figure all this stuff out, in a sense. Well, and, and the, what happened? And the beautiful thing, though, is is that mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't choose sides. He does not. That's the thing. He, he he draws a line and he asks us to cross it and follow him. Hey, Chica. So, you know, it's like I I, I see all these grace people posting that that God would choose the oppressor over the oppressed or <laughs> the 99 and the one the, analogy <laughs> right god would choose the oppressed <laughs> over the oppressor and you know and and i'm like well what would he do with the oppressor and of exactly. course they don't have an answer for that but you know it's like i i know that my god would leave the 99 to come find me and he did you know he did exactly um, and and i know that he would leave the majority to find the minority. But hey. at the same time, he's not turning his back okay. on the majority. He's not turning his back exactly. on the, the, uh, the people that, that don't know any better because we don't know any better, you know? And, and then I see all these people talking about how Jesus's message was political. No, it wasn't. It was not political. He did not come to oh, reform governments. He came to reform the individual. Oh. He came exactly. to reform 
creation. Oh my goodness, James! To reveal so good. who we are in Him. Not He did not come to lecture Caesar about having slaves. He did not come to lecture Pilate about arresting him. He didn't. He said, "If my kingdom was of this earth, my disciples so would rise up and take it by force." Hey, and. And, and there's so many of us grace people. <laughs> there's so many of us grace people that are hurting for the people that are hurting, and I understand exactly. that. I get it. I understand. As are we, yeah. But we also need to hurt for the person that actually did the hurting because they're hurting yep. too. They're you hurting know? too. But that's the thing. It's almost like, okay, why does anybody do anything that's not good? Like, why does anybody do anything? Exactly. No, even if they think, I love the point you made earlier about how they even think that they know better, that they're doing the greater good. I mean, shoot, Paul thought that he was doing the greater good, uh, you know, when he was Saul, you know, out there killing Christians. He committed murder. I mean, genocide, out there just, you know, slaughtering Christians and thought he was actually doing the work of God until Jesus came and knocked him off of his high horse on the way to Damascus and said, hey, you know, I'm the guy you're persecuting. What's up? Didn't lecture him, just gave him a call. And that was it. <laughs> and I've heard it said, I've heard it said that, oh, that, that God actually sent a, a Gentile believer to Paul to pray over him, to reveal his, his blindness. You know, mm. um, I don't know how true that is. I didn't read about that. I didn't hear about that. That would be interesting if so. I just, but I've heard I, it said that that is the that. case. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, it's just, you know, Jesus knows that we don't know any better with the majority of the things we do, no matter how much training or learning we do. It all comes exactly. down to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hey. You know, it's not yep. the tree of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. And, and exactly. when we pursue knowledge instead of grace, when we pursue knowledge instead of love, that's what causes the disparities. And that's what breaks my heart, you know? But uh, we exactly. need to go ahead and start wrapping this up because I've already taken too much of your time up uh, today. I know, that you, good, man. I know you worked a double shift at work and we definitely want to yeah. get some rest today but um i have um a few other things i just have um actually after this at about 1 30 i'm teaching a friend a driving lesson i think we're still on for that and then actually as you're you guys talking about multitasking just a little bit just trying to get some other things done, done. but no i've enjoyed this conversation 100 percent. i have immensely and, and maybe we'll do this again in the next week or so and uh maybe i'll try to get jolene on with us too because i'd like to hear her that'll be awesome um, you know, and, and maybe I'll get a few of the grace people that are saying some of the stuff that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, the stuff that we're kind of arguing against right now. I don't know if that'll work, Exactly. but you know, we'll, we'll see. see, you know, you never know. <laughs> you never know. I mean, we can like, we can make the effort. You right. Know, maybe, maybe we can all have like a group kind of round table cyber discussion. Right. <laughs> And and I think that would be a very beneficial thing to have, you know, and, and I've got my own stories with experience with police and bad decisions and things like that, that I'll be glad to share with mm -hmm. you the next time we probably record That'd this awesome. or even privately, you know, um, 
but I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend with me this morning. Um, we've had a great conversation. No problem. Even though we didn't really get into all of the stuff that I was hoping that we'd get into, mm -hmm. um, we just kind of ran out of time, but that's okay. <laughs> we got nothing but time. We have eternity. Exactly. So. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Hey, I wanted to ask you now, is there um, – also, thank you for popping my podcast, Cherry, by the way. <laughs> oh man! I wanted to make sure I got that out. Hey! <laughs> oh, good Lord, Jeremiah! Oh man! <laughs> hey! Oh, Shabababa! Oh my goodness! Oh, God. thank you, Jesus! Thank so, you, God! Wow! Well, I'm glad to have had the opportunity to to. Yeah. Uh, uh, bring you onto the podcast. I mean, you and I have been friends on Facebook for a little while. I don't know when we became yeah. friends, but um, we never really interacted no, until not. I saw some no. of the stuff you were posting. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that I did interact with you and thrilled to kind of hear your heart. And I can't wait to hear more of it as we go further into this discussion. But Absolutely. Uh, anyway, let's go ahead and end the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on, Jeremiah. Uh, is there any way that, uh, is there any resources that you have that you'd like to maybe offer the listeners to maybe reach out to you and get in contact with you? Do you have well, like yeah, a- Well, yeah, I have an Instagram. Um, Instagram is capital J-E-R-M-U-S underscore. Jeremus, that's my, uh, that is my um, nickname that I, that my sister gave me when I was a kid. Um, I also have a Facebook, Jeremiah Ezekiel Lee Gibson. The black and white photo of me. Um, you'll be able to see me. I have not changed that photo in about three years. <laughs> this is my favorite picture of myself. But those are my main social media outlets that I'm using right now that um, I think that I, you know, some people can get a load of who I am and what I'm about. I normally talk more in-depthly about different things that are really on my mind on Facebook. And Instagram, I just kind of post nice pictures because I feel like that's more of the audience I have over there. But um, Jeremiah, thanks for coming on again, and I'm going to stop recording My pleasure. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see each other soon. <laughs> So we had a cogent discussion today, and it's not an easy discussion to have. It's not an easy conversation to have. And there's a lot of things that I believe that we need to discuss. And um, one of the things that I came up with, an idea that I came up with, was that I plan on actually creating a conversation, a big group chat that I'm going to record and post as another episode of the podcast. I'm currently trying to get everyone together to join in, um, but I plan on doing that here in the next few weeks uh, as soon as I figure out the logistics of it. But I would love to get several people from different races and different uh, thought processes um, to have a grace-filled conversation about this very matter. And uh, so that will be coming soon. So... You can follow the podcast in any way that you would normally listen to podcasts, either through iTunes, through uh, SoundCloud, or through Google Podcasts, or any other podcast service that you might use. 
And you can also click the link on thewarriorscry.com for t-shirts to check out my t-shirt options, as well as purchase my book by clicking books, which is my 30-day devotional, The Song of You. So if you like what you hear today and you want to support independent creators like myself that create media and podcasts and videos on YouTube and things like that that you really, really enjoy, I would appreciate if you purchase something from my store uh, to support me in this cause, this ministry, um, as well as just to support me individually. I would love to do this full time and do multiple podcasts a week, uh, but right now it's just not feasible. So uh, anyway, I really appreciate you tuning in and listening. I love you guys and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he let his face shine upon you and give you peace forever and ever. Amen. And remember, as always, it is finished. Always.